Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, what the Guardian's slide into profit means for the paywall, how indies in Leeds can capitalise on a new accelerator programme and what is going on with Danny Baker. Plus, could negative coverage of sensitive issues turn newsrooms into hostile environments? And in the media quiz, we ask our legends to identify the TV legends who became the story. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining us today, I'm thrilled to say we have veteran media journalist and Channel 4 historian Maggie Brown back on the show. Hello, Maggie. Hello. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And you've just come from a lunch, of course. Yes, I have. I've come from, well, more than a lunch, actually. I've come from a meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from the voice of listener and viewer, which is really sort of like a Radio 4 pensioner club, I'm afraid. Yeah, but I mean, I hear I... the name and I think, was that the Mary Whitehouse one? But it wasn't, No, was that it? was, this was the good one. This was the one that actually <laughs> believed in public service broadcasting in all of its forms. And can you give us a tidbit of gossip? Well, actually, it was quite fun. The awards were being presented, and they had one um, Jan Raven of uh, Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. And she started off with a riff about the most miserable show on uh, Radio 4, which she said was you and yours, and how to get blood off a will. (laughs) (laughs) If if there's anywhere where you can do an impersonation of the presenter of you and yours, I imagine it is at the voice of the viewer and listener. Yeah, there was also Melvin Bragg, actually, because, of course, he always picks an an award. I mean, people love the fact that he's kind of still there, I think, and still, you know, very, very good on... What what did he win for? Well, he won for um, In Our Time, which I didn't know runs for 40. 42 years. I was, was for, sorry, 42 weeks, but I'm going mad. And it, the most amazing thing was that <laughs> I was talking, like to, I was talking to the producer and he said he just has to take the whole of the summer, you know, after 42 weeks, uh, you were just, because uh, it's done to such a high intensity of three very expert people, you know, talking about their subject and the research is, of course, of the highest. Standard. The highest calibre. Anyway, course. he said, I can't see why the BBC should be an arm of government and collect money from old age pensioners. Of which more later. Yes. Uh, also with us, the deputy editor of Metro.co.uk, Alex Hudson is back on the show. Hello, Alex. Good afternoon. Hello. Uh, <laughs> You've been canvassing opinion on how we balance free speech with protecting people from abuse online. Oh, this is part of Metro's The Future of Everything series. Shameless plug. Read it. Read it. Go to your internet. Google Future of Everything Metro all the time. Um, It's can you really have free speech on the internet? The answer is no in short terms, because ultimately there has to be balance about what you can and can't say, what abuse you can and can't give. But if you try and 
edit free speech like they have done in Sri Lanka after the terror attacks, then that shuts down the entire social internet. So where's the compromise? And so in my inbox for the last, since this piece went up yesterday, a lot of people have had a lot of opinions about whether or not free speech should be banned or whether or not it already is. What's the general view on, I guess, the latest headline-grabbing bit on this, which was Alex Jones and Infowars being banned from Facebook? Um, It depends on if you see Facebook and YouTube as publishers. I think they're coming to terms with the fact that they are publishers, or at least the public sees them as such. So it's their duty and their editing right to see who does and who doesn't appear on their platform. And there are sort of there are rival different YouTube offshoots that have a more libertarian view on what's discussed that they are going to very quickly. Well, isn't the answer compromise? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's it's where that line is drawn, and I the problem is that yeah. there is no. There, the point of the piece and the point of the whole issue is there is no right answer. It's impossible to get that exact point where people are, there's a consensus around what is and what isn't allowed. Well, talking about freedom of speech online and real-world repercussions, let's talk about the uh, story of the day as we record, which is that Danny Baker, award-winning broadcaster Danny Baker, has been fired from Radio 5 Live after tweeting a picture of a couple with a baby chimpanzee with the caption, Royal Baby leaves hospital. He's since deleted the post. He's apologised. How good was his apology, Alex? And do you think the BBC could have done something else other than fire him? He apologised for the offence it caused, which is the beautiful sort of press-rehearsed version of, I'm sorry, but I didn't really do anything wrong. Um, I think we've run a lot of stuff today about it, and the, the fact the fact that Danny Baker is not a bad person. It, the fact that he posted that is horrible, and it is, I would say, it's a racist tweet. But him doing that doesn't make him a bad person. It just means that he's a product of his times. Well, it and would make BB- him a bad person if he intentionally posted a chimpanzee as a reference to someone black, wouldn't it? That uh, would be a racist thing to do. There's two different forms of racism. Both both things are racist. So one is this attacking sort of malicious racism and, and one is sort of social racism that's just accidental is the wrong way of phrasing it, but it, it's an accident and it's not meant maliciously, but it's still horribly racist. It's still socially inappropriate. It's still, it's a sign of his times. And so we've had our columnists on it today and they're saying it's not Denny Baker is a bad person. It's just that the BBC is finally coming around to the fact that it's not appropriate to pass it off as banter or pass it off as a joke. There was no other option for the BBC other than to fire him. Do you agree with that, Maggie? Uh, yes, I do. It's a problem for the BBC because of the BBC being what it is. And it's a toxic mix of royalty and what appears to be racism. I've actually been discussing it with some pretty senior people, uh, producers at the BBC, and uh, they are quite unanimous in their view that um, what he did was wrong and that it was right to sack him. I think you've got to remember two things, really. First of all, he's in the business of live broadcasting, which I know there may be a second or two, you know, but there's hardly any real safety net there. So you have to be absolutely certain that the person you are employing in what is a pretty free-weeding show, which I personally don't like, um, but that's <laughs> not, it's not aimed at me. You know, I'm not ever going to be a red source person or whatever it is. The point is, there's a bemusement about it because it isn't just a flippant remark. You had to construct that tweet. It was, mm. it was something that required thought. So I think that that has also maybe played um, a part as well. I've actually met Danny Baker a few times, and I saw him uh, when he... I don't know if you remember, he did a sitcom from the cradle to the grave, which was on BBC Two a few years ago. And it was really about... it was about his sort of childhood in in South London. And it was nice meeting him, and I saw his daughter and all the rest of it. But there's a sort of almost odd 
lack of charm about him is what I would say. Now, I know that probably appeals to blokes, but perhaps that it's just gone a bit too far. And the, the comedy itself didn't actually take on and work, although it's inherently very funny. But so should you be fired for a, a bit... mistake? I mean, that's what it comes... I mean, this is... It sounds like... I, mean, I think... Well, there John... are mistakes and mistakes, and I've just said it depends on your job. Yeah. This is the whole point. If you are going out live to a national audience... But he didn't make the mistake going I out live. I know he didn't, but it's a question mark about his I mean, judgment, I suppose. It yes, seems to me this is sort of pointing out the problem with social media, Alex. You know, if you are a live broadcaster and you put all your energy and enthusiasm into creating a brilliant show that millions of people love and interact with as it goes out, that used to be the job. And now the problem is because of social media, there's a sort of pressure to continue being that personality all the time. And, of course, it's not its not your real personality. It's a projection. And, you know, he's trying all the time to push the envelope, say funny things, and this misfired. But it wasn't on the radio. It, it wasn't, but that's part of your job. Although, as, as Lorraine has shown, right, it's not the real human. Lorraine just won that case around... Lorraine fact, Kelly. You're uh, Lorraine Kelly, she just won the case about the fact that she, she is an actress, um, which is an interesting development. Um, with Social media is part of your job, and I know that if I tweet something, I could be fired for that relatively easily. And I think that's true even if you're not journalists. You can see countless examples of people putting out racist tweets or sexist tweets or things that just... Are pretty abhorrent and actually they end up losing their jobs even if it's in like a sort of more conventional office job and particularly when you're a presenter you are presenting you choose to be on social media it's not it's not a necessity although I think the presenters should be you have to be careful about what you say and there are very clear lines about the way you are and are not offensive and I think you make the really good point about the fact that it's it's a lot of effort to find that photo and then to put it on there like at what point did it in the back of his mind he's been a BBC broadcaster for how many years now decades yeah did he just think Oh, wait, I can see how that might be interpreted. It's not just what you say, it's how what you say can be interpreted. And they're, they're two often quite different things, but you have to know what the audience that you're aiming at, the expected reaction of what you get there. Do you know, I haven't seen all of the, t- the responses because I've been in this meeting, but has there been any big reaction to it from, say, his peers, the Chris Evans uh, generation? Because well, they were I, very upset when he was previously. Yeah, um, there's been, I've seen responses from Ian Lee uh, and from John Ronson saying this was a terrible mistake, but he shouldn't have been fired for it. Um, uh, but I'm sure there are examples on he, the other side saying no question. He deserved to be fired, but it's the idea of he's, he's allowed to be forgiven after this. Like the, one, the BBC is left with no option because of that sort of serious misconduct. He should be fired. But in that same vein, that doesn't have to tar his reputation for life. He can learn from this and he should learn from this. And he can get a contract for talk radio. Is I, that was what's gonna say, I was about to I say mean, that. If I was yes. running talk radio, I would snap him up now, you know, to come on air in six months' time once he's served his period, don't you think? Yes, I, I agree with you. I, I think, think that's he, I going. don't think it's the end of his broadcasting or his writing career, but um, it is, unfortunately for him, a very ill-judged... Maybe he meant to be satirical, but uh, it just isn't right. I wonder as well whether, actually, Five Live were quite keen to get rid of him because he was, he was almost like the sort of Steve Allen of Five Live in the sense that they can't deny his enormous popularity... And yet, if you were creating the station as it is now, you know, in LBC's case, it is a effectively sort of news commentary network. And in Five Live's case, it is rolling news and sport. Danny Baker doing three hours of completely irreverent nonsense on a Saturday morning, it's fun, but it, it has nothing to do with... They wouldn't commission it now, would they? I don't know, because I don't run Radio 5 Live. The commercial radio at the moment seems to be snapping up BBC ex-presenters, at least a handful. And it gives the BBC an opportunity to bring in someone when non-white, you, yes. non, like, non-male, like non somebody mm. who actually speaks to a, a breadth of the audience that the BBC doesn't traditionally hit. Although we're going to see a lot of pissed off Five Live listeners at the weekend, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, you know, that's their weekend. 
they well, listen to Well, it was my husband's, and then he yeah. just stopped. He just got fed up with it, which I was really pleased about, to be honest. Red sauce. Uh, OK, uh, let's talk about uh, something that Maggie alluded to earlier, the row over free TV licences for the over 75s. It's returned to the Commons this week, but failed to find a resolution. Uh, first of all, Maggie, why was the debate back in Parliament this week? Well, it's because uh, there's a huge wave of opposition to it, and private members' bills were laid. Um, it has uh, Age UK uh, lobbying very hard. There's a petition of about 100,000 people. And, of course, the BBC itself has been lobbying extremely hard. And Tom Watson for, for Labour, who's actually, of course. you forget, is the shadow culture secretary, yes, yes. as well as being he, he, deputy I mean, leader. Yes, he's, he's a powerful presence. And the whole issue is toxic. The background to this, really, is the state of government. We are not really being governed. And the Brexit on pass is literally absorbing all the energies. So there's no real decision-making going on. So this lobbying is building up. It's a bit like a volcano, you know, about to burst, and you don't kind of know what's going to happen. And it's urgent because whether or not this scheme was sensible or not, and my personal view is it was not right in, in 2000 to have introduced it. They should have put the pension up if they were worried that pensioners couldn't pay the licence fee. But we are where we are. What has happened today is very interesting because one of the 12 trustees in 2015 who was there when George Osborne forced the BBC to take on this commitment, he was in the room with the chairman of the BBC uh, when she was phoned, Rona Fairhead, and told that the Chancellor wanted to speak to her and also to Tony Hall. He was not then party to any conversations, but they were given till 12 o'clock to accept. John Whittingdale, who was the former Culture Secretary, actually said in the in the Commons that the aim was basically to abolish the BBC licence fee at the end of the day. Well, OK. Yeah. Alex, where we are now... Given the situation is a kind of political decision whether older people should be paying the licence fee or not, whether they should get subsidised licence fees or no, not. No, it's not a political decision because it's the been, BBC I know it's been delegated been to the BBC. What I mean is, it's, yeah, but the BBC would still be okay. making a political choice. Should there now be uh, a, a U-turn on this and an understanding that it, it was never the government's to pass over to the BBC? I think it is a political decision because I think everyone is is sort of angling for the um, pensioner vote. And I think Labour and Conservatives arguing about this is whatever happens is a key part of winning the over 75s vote. Uh, and Labour are kind of coming into this because they think they've got the young young vote sewn up. They don't. It's fallen by 12% over 2018. So actually, Labour support is dwindling and they're looking towards minor parties or just disengaging with the political process after Corbyn. When it comes to the licence fee, I've talked about on this podcast many times before about the fact that the BBC is underfunded. Um, so the Netflix came out with figures. They're spending $15 billion. That's £11.5 billion pounds on content this year. The entire BBC's revenue is about £5.3 billion. Pounds. So you can expect the BBC to produce half as much content as Netflix does. That's, that's what we're saying as a sort of country, that we're willing the BBC to be half as voluminous or half as creative or half as brilliant as Netflix is. And that's where the BBC is. And that's curtailing that revenue even further is baffling and it's political football that doesn't make any sense. Of course it's going to affect huge swathes of BBC content and radio... Well, unless the BBC, of course, makes the decision... To well, cut the benefit, they, they, which is, that is a political decision the BBC would well, be that, forced to make. That, that, Do you think is, they could make it? Well, I mean, that is one of the options, or they could vary it. Or they could, um, I mean, the means, the means test testing. But, but that costs millions the BBC to set up? have to actually set up means testing? It's not really something that they should have ever agreed to. And they're now caught in this awful inheritance, really. I think it's 
may be why Tony Hall has had to stay in the job, to be honest. Ethically, though, regardless of what it costs to set up in terms of means testing, and regardless of whether we think that's the BBC's job or not, maybe that is the fairest way to proceed with this. Because, as Maggie said, it was kind of Gordon Brown's decision when money was flushed to say, let's try and reduce pension and poverty with this giveaway. But now... It's easier to make the case, isn't it? Well, OK, if you're a pensioner who doesn't have any money and needs benefits, then you're entitled to a TV licence. And if you're not in that situation, you're not. That's a wonderful idea, and it will be great if it's rolled out across everybody. Means testing the licence fee is something that I think is broadly a good idea. But by the end of 2019, 37% of children will be in poverty in the UK. Yeah, but so, as it so, is at the moment, they have to pay the licence Yeah, fee. so that's my point, right? So if you're going to do it for over 75s, there is a loneliness thing with, with elderly people. There, course, is, yeah. there is still a poverty issue around elderly people, particularly if uh, they're They're not part- going to be doing Netflix, maybe. They won't, you know, subscribe. I mean, they were talking about the pensioners on, you know, the minimum, which is £7,000 on a pension. And you do have pensioner credit, so you, you could see a way of doing something... I, yeah, I you do have pensioners that own three properties that well, are getting subsidised licence fees. It's the That's same the, thing, really, with the fuel allowance and yeah, you know, with free bus passes. <clears> you know, how far do you go? It, it was. It's clearly a, a very toxic subject. I think that there will be um, a political intervention because, as you say, Alex, it, it's 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 just a, a poison. They shouldn't have been asked to do it in the first place. They shouldn't have. Yeah. Okay, sticking with the BBC, there are two new controller roles there in audio and music: head of BBC Sounds and head of pop music. Alex, I kind of understand the BBC Sounds thing. It's bizarre (laughs) they didn't have a head of BBC Sounds considering it was their big launch already. But head of pop music? Uh, We have controllers of the radio stations. Isn't that good enough? It's really confusing. But as uh, W1A takes takes on and sort of makes (laughs) jokes around, the BBC has that restructure once every couple of years and there's a new head of something or there's a new deputy director of something else. It's the way the BBC works to make sure that it's always rigorous with who and who it doesn't employ. As far as pop music, it's because the BBC is losing its way with pop music. It's no, no fault of the BBC's. It's just that the entire commercial industry is caught up, capital's caught up when it comes to radio, when it comes to digital. You are competing with the entire internet, and Spotify is the single biggest thing, and iTunes are sort of not distant second, but still a second when it comes to where people are getting their music. It's why music journalism is struggling, because if I want to go find a new song, the Spotify algorithm has it, and if the Spotify algorithm doesn't, the influences on Spotify if I will have all of the music I could ever want to listen to. Okay, and I, but how's and, and, an executive going to help with that? <laughs> that? I think that's that's a question for the BBC. I don't think it will. I think Ben Cooper is an absolute dead cert for this job unless they're recruiting externally. Do you agree, Maggie? Ben yes, Cooper? I think so. Well, he's he's really the man in charge, mm. isn't he? And he'll take the the hottest job, and that that's so he's the former is. controller of Radio One. Yes, I know. And no, no, you know, I'm explaining as people listen. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I love it. Um, and Radio Two hasn't had a controller since Bob Shannon took up his mm. new role. So, do you yeah. think what they're doing actually is phasing the controllers out and then giving the jobs back? to Bob Shannon and Ben Cooper, which is where we were 10 years ago. I think they're having a reorganisation and people are grabbing the bits they want. I don't really understand what's going on at the BBC. And I think Sounds is clearly needing some work doing on it too. So I think once again, and of course we've got a new Radio 4 controller who's, um, you know, kind of going to be appointed pretty soon, I think. It's yeah, we the said last that on the show week. three weeks ago. No, when are we going to find week, out? No, uh, Gwyneth Williams wasn't uh, at the meeting today because she's in America. There is a final interview round yeah. going on at the moment, yeah. which I'm not meant to know about or talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, you, do you hear names? I, I think I I'm... Maybe, but I'm absolutely not get letting that go. So, <laughs> so I'm not going do, anywhere. Do you hear male or female names? Female. I hear Let's all. Guess of, I hear loads of names, and <laughs> I hear no names, and I'm not. Nope, not at all. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, newspapers now, and the outcome of a tribunal to decide whether a former Times editor was unfairly dismissed on the basis of their transgender identity uh, could have major implications for newsrooms. Why, Alex? Why isn't this just a simple case of... Um, well, tell us what the case is, first of all. Um, the case is around a editor who was at the Scottish office of the Times, uh, and she was um, transitioning towards her female current identity while she was working at the Times. Yeah, so this is Catherine O'Donnell, former night editor of the Times there in Scotland. Um, and she was then made redundant. Uh, but this, and what transpired after she was made redundant was that um, what she perceived as being a very sort of pernicious culture, an anti-trans culture, and the comments that flew across the newsroom and even in that ended up in the Times newspaper were perceived by her as being anti-trans. And so that's the thing, isn't it, Maggie? It's not just that she's saying... I was bullied and harassed in the workplace and making those allegations which the Times deny. But actually what she's saying is, and their transphobic attitude made its way into op-eds and that made me feel bullied as well. And then that raises questions for anyone who's, you know, a Labour supporter who works for the Daily Mail or whatever it is. I don't really understand this case. And I, I feel she's obviously so upset and, and feeling she's been grievously mistreated that she is taking this step, which is a pretty, you know, extreme step. There has been, obviously, a lot of debate within the paper, columns like Janice uh, Turner, who's been quite um, outspoken about these issues. And I think that may be what she's referring to. I read The Times every day. Um, they've certainly made the whole issue and also of children being allowed to um, transition. A, a noisy strand in the paper is what I would say. But actually, one of the, that's one of the things that's changed with this subject, transitioned, if you like, over the last kind of 20 years, Alex, is the attitude to transphobia, as you'd call it now, being something that was akin to racism or homophobia. Um, you know, in 10 years ago even, it was more reasonable, more accepted by the mainstream to write a critical column about people who transitioned than it would be now. And I, I think that's the tricky thing, right? I think if you can find me a person who isn't the editor of a newspaper, who agrees with everything the paper puts out, then you are doing a better searching job than I do. There, is all, there are always things in newspapers or on broadcasters that, that people who work there won't agree with. And I, th I think that's, that's the first point. I think the second point is the way that a newsroom operates. I, th I think you're right. Like I think speaking about this specifically is, is probably a dangerous thing to do. But more broadly, the stuff that gets said in newsrooms, and mm. I think that is improving, and we're, I'm making it sort of a personal duty to make sure that the stuff that shouldn't be said anywhere, regardless of whether you're in a newsroom or not, isn't said. But when you're on a breaking news story, if it's a crash bang, something has happened, some somebody has died or whatever, th those conversations need to be sharp and brisk. And the people who are at the more Danny Baker spectrum of their age and their, their, their knowledge of LGBT, LGBTQ plus issues are more likely to say something offensive. And, and that, so that that's the, the thing of the issue. When stuff is reaching into print, I think that's you get into all of those sort of allegations of snowflake, of you can't take criticism, all that sort of stuff. I think that's unhelpful. Yeah, you can't be a violet uh, yeah. on a motorway in a, in a newsroom at any point. I mean, you ha these are big live events happening and people get very stressed and they're working against deadlines. Uh, she's a night editor as well. Remember, that's when a lot of changes are made. I, I just I just don't know. Uh, what about that point, though, Maggie, that Alex is making about newsroom culture in general? Oh, it's though. changed enormously. I mean, gosh, you know, I mean, when I, when I started out, I mean, you would hear one of my friends, a graduate trainee, being barracked and told, why don't you shave your legs? You know, things like that. I mean, very <laughs> sexist remarks were made. And, and it was partly, too, that there were not that many women around as well. So you were always objects of, you know, uh, maybe 
even lust, dare I say, you know, I think that people behave differently towards women. And, you know, they, they were very, it was very, you know, very masculine. There's really clear guidance from all sorts of LGBT charities. There's really clear IPSO guidance. And so if stuff makes it to print that is misleading or in any way transphobic or any of the other phobics that are there, IPSO has really rigorous checks in place to make sure things are accurate. And so that that side of it, I think, is I think there's a lot of things around opinion and what what can and can't be said as honestly held views. But when it comes to the actual factual factual rigour of what happens, Ipsa already is doing that. Yeah. OK, be interesting case to watch once the Times have had a chance to put their point of view as well. OK, more media news in brief coming up after this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Time for some media news in brief now. Maggie and Alex are still with me. Uh, and the independent trade body for film and TV, Pact, have opened an office in Leeds this week, your hometown, Alex. Precisely. Congratulate. Everyone's moving, though. It's a new place to be. Yeah, except apart from you, you moved down here to get work in the media. Uh, <laughs> you can move back. <laughs> uh, they have a new accelerator programme there, Maggie. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I can. I mean, it's very interesting because uh, what is really going on is that, of course, Channel 4 is, is transferring the bulk of uh, th- 300 people up there and a lot of commissioning editors all across a number of genres. They've got a lot of production already there, really, but it's going to be ramping up. Uh, You've got things like the um, new young audience uh, content fund, which is also uh, has got 60 million to disperse over the next uh, three years. They're, They're putting people there. So the overriding problem now is that what PACT campaigned very vigorously for not having Channel 4 move outside of London. It's changed its colours. 
And in the background, or not so much in the background actually now, is Ofcom saying that there has to be much more stringent controls on what constitutes an out-of-London production. And in addition, they're, they're now consulting on really quite tough rules of what constitutes an independent production. So you can't just suddenly shift a load of people out of London and take them up to, say, you know, Leeds or somewhere, the Scottish Highlands, and make a programme. You have to show that you have an office and that you actually are a regional producer. And what's more, the quota is going to be 50% which is uh, by, by 2022. But so, that's 50% uh, out of London, not 50% in Leeds. So there's, it, um, no, but the point is that it, it, it has to be around the country. So there's been a dramatic change and turnaround in the northwest because of Salford and the BBC and all of the kind of activity hmm. that has occurred there. There's been a certain amount in Cardiff where there's been a push to do drama and there are problems associated with that, but it's it's there. And it was felt very much that the East Northeast had been neglected. And it was partly sold on the fact that people in Newcastle on the Tyne could get, Gateshead could get down to Leeds much more easily than, as we know, the notorious problems of getting across to somewhere like you know, Salford, in fact, it's easier for yeah, them to get London's to London. Yeah, but London's easy to get to, isn't it, Alex? I mean, you know, if you're yeah, in... Yeah, but Bur- there, there, there's a, a reason for this. Everybody knows that the political class and London lost really contact with the regions. No, but what I was going to say... blamed for Brexit. What's this, the difference, this, this, Alex? If you're, if you're in Birmingham or Brighton or Manchester, what's the difference really going to Leeds or going to London? You're you, still going to a different city. You get a whole different view, and it's, it's people from different places and I think there are, London is a wonderful cosmopolitan city but once you're in London for more than a couple of years you become very sort of indoctrinated with the way and the pace that London works and you're right like it's a, it's there's many different voices but they, they all have that sort of slight London twinge about them and moving it away from that having having a real idea of different types of people different walks of life and having a better idea of what production to, to different people around the country could do is exciting. And what about it, in your world then? So we've, we've got TV production moving into regions at exactly the same point that newspapers are essentially shutting down their local operations. Well, the Press Association is in Yorkshire, remember? But do you, do you think there should be a sort of similar Ofcom-style quota for content created outside London in news journalism? Well, if there is some news journalism left at the end of the day, I mean, it's what I would say. I mean, what you have to remember is that there's a number of of problems here. One is, actually, that there's a push all the time for diversity and representation and, you know, treating everybody fairly, everybody being represented. But London isn't actually representative of the rest of the country. Mm. So there's... PACT is is well aware of this problem. So, for example, if you have to um, list in your production team people who are black, Asian, what is diversity when you're actually saying there needs to be more production in, in Glasgow, in Scotland, where actually the populations are more white, actually? But there's a sort of whole issue about representation as well, which is all mixed up in this and making sure all these different voices get heard. Okay. Ma- Maggie what, did swerve my question. Alex, what's your answer? Do you think news journalism should have a quota outside of London too? Um, in the long term, yes. I think you're right. If news journalism still exists, I think. Ideally, having a variety of voices. I think Leeds is doing some good stuff. I think Joe and I think Lad Bible are doing some stuff out there. I think I think it is slowly getting that way. With digital first, you don't necessarily need to be in an office, which you can read about on the future of everything in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 
moving back to the point around TV production, it's a golden age of TV production. So if you look at Luke Lewis, who's formerly of BuzzFeed, formerly of the Eye, he's just moved over to become Netflix UK's head of editorial. And you can see where that's going with those budgets for independent productions. That's huge. So it's, it's what what does he do in that job? That's really exciting. And what do Pact bring to that? And what, how do they work together? Yeah. Okay, uh, let's talk about The Guardian. They have gone into profit for the first time since 1998, yes. one of the most significant turnarounds in recent British media history, although that doesn't account for... Operating profit. Operating, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't account for the subsidy they the get from Scott Trust. The profit is, is, is £800,000. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's a very slender profit, but... You but know, it's a profit. And Maggie. it's after, you know, a subsidy from their, their trust fund of uh, 25 to £30 million. Pounds. I am very pleased, obviously, and I'm delighted, too, that they have managed to find a source of income from readers, however unreliable or reliable that turns out to be. Um, I was there, you know, working in 2010 when basically they tried yet again to bring some sort of discipline to to The Guardian, and it clearly just failed. And there was definitely um, a sense, I'm afraid, that the business side, Andrew Miller, the chief executive, somehow did not have real control, I think, over the spending on editorial. And all of the things that have happened since 2015, from, you know, ditching the Berliner, going tabloid, cutting a huge number of jobs, and actually also a lot of freelance contracts. There's been a definite contraction, but at the same time, they have managed to pull themselves together. One of the key things which I think is is overlooked is that they have a much tougher chairman of the Scott Trust that is, I think, more, uh, you know, somebody who's interrogating Alex Graham, who was a very... Uh, successful independent TV producer and is in fact still in the business. They've 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 just sharpened up their financial controls as well. Alex, when Maggie says <laughs> you know contributions from readers have led to this, I'd clarify that by saying I think half of whom are American. It certainly, you could almost say contributions from Americans, couldn't you? And I and I wonder <laughs> whether. Um, yeah, not whether that's sustainable, because, you know, the USA is a big place, but whether that w- could be replicated in other titles, because there's a particular left-leaning American readership that wants The Guardian's content. Well, the it, FT does. I mean, the FT has a lot of... But it's not voluntary, there. isn't it? No, it's, it, it's, it's a, a subscription. Are there any other sort of news titles do you think could, could replicate this model of asking for donations and getting enough to be in profit? The Independent, the Independent's trying a, a similar thing. And the, the point with this, and, and anyone who tells you otherwise is entirely wrong, nobody knows. Nobody knows what, what is the actual answer of how you sustain news journalism, particularly like investigative journalism, particularly sort of off-diary big story journalism, without having that hard paywall behind it. So dropping name-dropping now. I was chatting to Ian Hislop about it, of Private Eye, and he was, there is no possible way of doing real journalism unless you're charging for it. I think the, it's very different from that. I think there's a number of different business models, but the voluntary subscription, so you have your... 50 million readers a month or 100 million readers a month or whatever it is but you've got a core group of maybe one or two million people who live and die by your content who travel to your site every morning or every evening or whatever that time is during the day and it's how you can convince them that five pounds a month 10 pounds a month 15 pounds a month is worth paying to make sure that your your site which you love is going to stay in the five and ten years, which is going to be incredibly challenging, particularly for sort of deep, long investigative journalism. The conversion rate is quite low as well. That was what I think is quite worrying. I I actually, I think I know that The Guardian would not necessarily turn their back on a, a form of subscription I'm not saying it's it's happening, but a I paywall, you mean? A pay of of some sort, because I, or a premium. I, do, I don't know. I think that or I, I I don't think they can rule out anything because the long term question is the survival of 
The Guardian as a newspaper and what about a liberal pr- voice. Newspaper as in print? I mean, here's the question that you've been yeah. asked ever since this show was The Guardian's media talk yeah. podcast however many years ago. Yeah. When is The Guardian going to ditch print? It sort of makes sense, maybe Saturday Guardian, Sunday Observer. But apart from that, aren't they losing focus, making a Monday to Friday print title with dwindling readership when profits are coming in now digitally? don't think they would do it for the weekend uh, at all. I know I think that it, it acts as um, a, a physical reminder and a, a, a brand of the paper. Uh, it's perfectly possible that just like books are coming back into fashion, uh, it is possible that a form of paper, a newspaper, uh, will somehow retain its salience. Monday that's to what Friday, I think. Guardian. The, the, time, the Times, that's how the Times does their business. Well, it, like, paper publishing will die. I've been saying this for as long as I've been on this podcast. Um, but what edition-based publishing, so the Times model is three, three editions a day, I think will sustain because people like the idea that they are completing the news or mm. their version of the news or, or what is happening that day. Like the Economist Espresso that I've talked about before, it's seven stories. Here is what you need to know today, and that's it. You don't need to search through the depths of the site. It's just these stories. All right, well, before we keep you here any longer than Melvin Bragg has been on in our time, there is just time for our media quiz. Oh, God. This week, (laughs) we are calling it Legends Endgame. We have found three stories from Medialand that each involve a broadcasting legend. I'm going to give you the bare bones of the story. You just have to name the legend at the centre of each one. You buzz in with your name, so when you know the answer, Alex, you will say... Alex. And Maggie, you will say... Where's my buzzer? You buzz with your name. You say Maggie. (laughs) You can say where's my buzzer if you like. (laughs) Okay. Here is legend number one. To whom am I referring? Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Who had to hand back to the studio halfway through a report after stumbling over the news of the royal baby? Maggie. I was watching it. Nicholas Witchell. It was head in hand stuff, wasn't it? Oh, it it was so sad. So awkward. Yeah. And then he was on last night and he he was perfectly okay. And, and, you know, everybody tweeted very sympathetically, don't judge him. And I just looked at at him and I thought, oh dear, you do look a little bit sort of pale and sad and I'm so glad you've, you've made it through to the end of this item. Well, the thing is, everyone has bad days at work. You know, everyone loses their train of thought. It's just Nicholas Witchell, unfortunately, is on telly when it happens. But does his style of learning a minute and a half by rote and then saying it down the lens, does that contribute to this issue? You know, he could have responded more um, authentically had he not scripted it in that way and then forgotten his link. He could have done, but in that same way, the baby was born at, what, 5am? And chances are that he's been tipped off off the record in a way that most of the nationals weren't. So he'll have been up since goodness knows what hour, and it's, what, 16, 17 hours later. He's not (laughs) going to be... He's going to be a bit tired. It's been quite a long day. Like, as a royal correspondent... You've, you've got very few jobs bigger until, until if ever it happens, which it will, uh, a big senior royal mem- member dies. And, yeah, you shouldn't... I think learning by rote is a good journalistic principle, particularly on the 10. On the news channel, you've got more freedom to kind of ad-lib and to have a conversation. They want something snappy. They want more minute 30. You have to hit those things. And so learning that script to a minute 30 is actually quite a good idea. Yeah, but if you can't pad about the royal baby, Maggie, I mean, I could talk for a minute and a half about the royal baby being born. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was thinking. Uh, Okay, here's legend number two. Which political reporter has stepped down from Channel 4 News to concentrate on his writing? Alex. Yes. Michael Crick. It is Michael Crick. He announced his departure from Channel 4 News after more than seven years, saying, quote, there comes a point where you can't carry on chasing politicians down the street forever. I love him. I love that too. Love I love him. the fact he chases them. <laughs> He's in my book, my Channel 4 book. Will Channel 4 miss Michael Crick, okay. Maggie? Um, yes, probably. Um, but it doesn't mean that Channel 4 won't be making, say, documentaries or um, current affairs with him, dispatches. And 
I think that he remains, well, I know he, he, he remains as full of uh, life and vim and, you know, has an ability to spot stories. And, you know, Cambridge Analytica was one of the ones he kind of worked out quite early. So we haven't heard the last of him at all. Maybe he's decided, actually, that being chained to the news round and, you know, the 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock slots, um, it's quite a sort of, um, you know, a difficult time. And I know he's got a daughter at school near me, so maybe he wants a bit more family life. All right, here's the tiebreak. Legend number three. Which 93-year-old broadcaster oh, is seeking a trance producer <laughs> to mix his recordings into a club banger? Maggie. Oh, David Attenborough. It Sir David Attenborough, Sir David who Attenborough. is 93 this, this week. Yes, he's looking for a DJ yeah. to remix a three-minute field recording of sacred Gamalayan music to introduce the indigenous music of Indonesia to a new generation. Will it, you be listening? It just shows how old he is. He should be getting a drill producer or a grime producer. Trance is <laughs> so naughty. <laughs> uh, and with that... Wry remark, Alex, you are declared the loser of oh. this week's media quiz. Oh. Maggie, congratulations. I never win. You must, I must be on this podcast <laughs> with you again. <laughs> that is it for our show for today. My thanks to Maggie Brown and to Alex Hudson. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, then do consider taking out a voluntary subscription like The Guardian. It worked for them. 800 grand we're expecting now. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. A few quid's fine if you haven't got 800 grand. Uh, You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production, and until next time, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.